But I want to share tonight's topic. The reason why is because this is something that is near and dear to my heart. We're going to be talking about a very special thing that God has given to each and every one of us, something that is accessible to us living in America. And the book, this, this very interesting book that has changed the world, has changed Asia and many people's lives. And so as we get into that, I just want to make sure you have your Bibles. Everyone has a Bible right in front of them because we're going to be needing that, okay? Now, if you take a good look right there on that PowerPoint screen, you'll see a love letter. Okay, now if you've been coming out to the new meetings, we've been talking about love stories in the Bible, amen? amen? Now what's very interesting, if you go to the Library of Congress, you will actually see this letter there. It's encased. It's a very mysterious letter. The people do not know where its origins are from. However, somebody discovered it one day. Now you're thinking to yourself, well, what's the big deal about this love letter? I've received many love letters before. I've given many love letters is what you're probably thinking. What's so important about this love letter? Now I'm going to share some of these words with you from this love letter. And when I read this love letter, to me, it's absolutely adorable. Here are the words. Madam, it was actually written by a young man, and he mailed it to his girlfriend. Madam, the great love and tenderness I have hitherto expressed for you is false. And now I feel that my indifference towards you increases proportionably every day. And the more that I see you, the more I appear ridiculous and an object of contempt. And the more I feel disposed, inclined, and finally determined to hate you. Believe me, I have never had the least inclination to offer you my hand and heart. Isn't that beautiful? Let's continue. Our last conversation has, I assure you, left a wretched insipidity which has been no, which has been no means possess me with the most exalted opinion of your character. Yes, madam, and you will be much obliged me, you will much oblige me by avoiding me. And if ever we are united, I shall experience nothing but the fearful hatred of my parents added to an everlasting displeasure of living with you. That just makes me tear up. Yes, madam, I think sincerely, you need not put yourself to the smallest trouble or send or write me an answer. Adieu. And believe that I am so adverse to you that it is really impossible that I should ever be, madam, your affectionate lover till death. <laughs> Isn't that one of the most beautiful love letters you have ever read in your entire life? Now here's the thing. Now what's so unusual about this love letter, it seems like not a love letter. Now when you're reading it at first, you're thinking to yourself, how in, this, how in the world could this be classified or categorized as a love letter? But the reason why it's in the Library of Congress is because it's a very mysterious piece of literature. The reason why it's mysterious is, is there is a coded message within this so-called love letter. And what is that coded message? It's this. Every other line actually shows the real love letter. The great love and tenderness I have hitherto expressed for you increases proportionably every day. And the more that I see you, the more I feel disposed, inclined, and finally determined to offer you my hand and heart. Our last conversation has possessed me with the most exalted opinion of your character. And if ever we are united, I shall experience nothing but the pleasure of living with you. Yes, madam, I think sincerely. Write me an answer. Audio. And believe that I am, madam, your affectionate lover till death. W. Joff. This was actually written by a young man to a young lady whose father did not approve of him 
And so what he did, he specifically engineered this letter, and as he sent it out, the father would make sure, check all the mail that would come for his daughter, and as he read that, he was very happy to give this to his daughter. <laughs> Only to discover later on, the real love letter was encouched in this confusion of words. Ladies and gentlemen, we're going to be talking about God's love letter that has been given to each and every one of us. Now, what's very interesting, we're going to be looking at a very special story in the Bible. One of my most favorite stories in the Bible. So if you have your Bible, go to Luke 24, Luke chapter 24. Dr. Luke made a very accurate recording of the life of Jesus. However, this story that's found in Luke 24 to me is the most astounding story out of all the stories that appear in the Gospel of Luke. And I promise I promise you this, at the very end of this message, you're going to be hit with a left hook when you realize the implications of this story. So if you have your Bible, go to Luke chapter 24. If you're sitting next to somebody who does not, please just scoot over and share Luke 24 with them. Luke chapter 24. Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. We're going to Luke chapter 24. Now, the context of this particular passage, Jesus has just been crucified. The disciples are in disarray. Their life seems in confusion. Their ambitions lost. Their dreams dashed. And it seemed like life could not get any worse. A few of these disciples decide to go for a walk one day, trying to get out of Jerusalem because they're being hunted down. And so as they're walking down this mysterious road to Emmaus, all of a sudden, an unusual stranger who they do not recognize begins to come up right alongside to them. Go to Luke chapter 24, starting with verse 13. Luke 24, starting with verse 13. Take a good look at what the Bible says right here. Now behold, two of them were traveling that same day to a village called what? Emmaus, which was how many miles from Jerusalem? Seven miles from Jerusalem. And they talked together of all these things that happened. So they, here they were, they were conversing about all the events that just took place, all the things that had discouraged them. Let's continue. So it was while they conversed and reasoned that Jesus himself... Did you get that? Jesus himself drew near and went with them, but their eyes were restrained so that they did not know him. They had no idea that Jesus had resurrected. And to them, this mysterious stranger who had showed up right alongside to them was none other than just a stranger to them. But the Bible records that this was Jesus, but in somehow some kind of disguise. So here they are, they're just walking, they're talking about all the things that are taking place, and this hooded figure shows up right next to them, and they continue walking. Now watch what this mysterious figure says to them. And he said to them, what kind of conversation is this that you have with one another as you walk and are what? Sad. Let's continue. Then one whose name was Cleopas answered and said to him, are you the only stranger in Jerusalem? They had no idea who they were talking to. No idea. Are you the only stranger in Jerusalem? Now watch what the Bible says next. And have you not known the things which have happened here in these days? They have no clue that they're talking about the very one who these things had happened to. Anytime we talk about Jesus, he shows up. And so here he is, and you can just imagine that scene. He's probably smiling. Now watch what he says next. He said to them, what things? Now, I want you to pay attention to what they begin to say as they are talking. And as they're just blabbing out the things that took place, you can begin to see the doubt and the discouragement and the skepticism for more and more about Jesus, the so-called Messiah. Watch what the Bible says. 
They said to him, the things concerning Jesus of who? Nazareth, who was a prophet. Notice this. Already their views of Jesus begin to diminish. No longer just son of son, the son of God, he was now the prophet. The prophet who was mighty indeed and before God and all the people. And how the chief priests and our rulers condemned him, or delivered him to be condemned to death and crucified him. Look at verse 24. This is very key. But we were hoping. In other words, we had hopes about him, but they were dashed. But we were hoping that it was he who was going to redeem Israel. Indeed, besides all this, today is the third day since these things happened. Now watch verse 22. Yes, and certain women of our company who arrived at our tomb astonished us. What did they say? When they, say, when they did not find his body, they came saying they had also seen a vision of angels who said he was alive. And certain of those who went with us, who were with us, went to the tomb and found it just as the women had said, but him they did not see. Here they are, they continue talking, and as they're just talking about all these discouraging things, you can see more and more the doubt, the skepticism, the discouragement continue to grow more and more and more. And here they are, they're denying all the evidences that Jesus had given to them. Oh yeah, the things concerning Jesus, who was a prophet. And we were hoping this was going to be who was going to redeem Israel, but he wasn't. And this was the third day since his crucifixion. And some of the women told us that something took place in the tomb, and some of us actually went over there and found nothing. Here they are, they're talking out their discouragements and their doubts, and it's just getting worse and worse and worse. But they had been given evidence prior to this situation that Jesus was really God. But now in their discouragement, they were denying everything. Their faith had been obliterated. Oftentimes in discouragement, in doubt, and trouble, is when our faith begins to shake and we lose that trust that we once had upon God. But the wonderful thing is, Jesus doesn't forsake us. Amen? And in mysterious ways and unusual providences, he comes to us at our darkest moments to give us a very special message. Now, I love this message that he immediately gives to them as they continue talking. It's almost as if he just shuts them up. Look what he says next. Verse 25, then he said to them, oh, foolish ones. He called them fools. He said, oh, foolish ones. And slow of heart to believe in all that the prophets have spoken. Ought not the Christ to have suffered these things and to enter into his glory? Now watch verse 27 because it's key. And beginning at Moses and all the prophets, he expounded to them all things in the scriptures concerning himself. This is very key, ladies and gentlemen. What Jesus begins to give these discouraged disciples is a Bible study. Here they are, they're walking, and he just begins to break open the scriptures. They have no idea who this stranger really is. He doesn't look like Jesus. He doesn't act like Jesus. He's somebody else. But as they begin talking, as Jesus begins to explain to them, he begins to share things in the scriptures concerning Jesus, the Messiah. You know what's so powerful about this? Jesus could have at any moment, right then and there, revealed his identity. 
He could have dealt with all their skepticism, all their doubt right then and there, and all their discouragement, but instead of just giving them a miracle that was temporal, he decides to rebuild their faith upon the Word of God. Can you say amen to that? God's Word is so powerful, and it's very important for us to understand why the Word of God is so powerful, especially in a very discouraging world. The Word of God has, is such a, a powerful instrument that God has given to us in these last days. The Bible makes multiple claims about itself. Number one, the Bible tells us that the Bible is the Word of God. Number two, it's the greatest source of information that we have about Jesus. Number three, it, is a, it gives a claim about the life to come. It talks about heaven. Number four, it deals with the relevance to life. It's a very relevant book. Number five, it has an ability to change lives. And I can personally testify to that. Number six, it's the basis for culture. We'll get into that as well. And number seven, it is a source of hope. But there still is a lot of skepticism concerning God's Word. And there is a lot of so-called religious books that are out there. As I said earlier, I grew up as a Hindu. I also come from a Sikh background. And in Hinduism, you'll find there are two primary categories of Hindu literature. You'll find the Vedas, which are the holy sacred writings, which only the priests can understand. And then you have the Mahabharata and the, the Ramayan, which is mythological stories that most Hindus are understanding and they have access to. So this is how I grew up. But when I came across the Word of God, at first to me it was just this ancient document and I did not see it much different than the Hindu literature that was available. I go to the library and you just go into the, the religious section and you'll see so many books about that religion, so many books about this religion, so many books about that religion. But the unusual thing about the scripture is this, that the Bible is a real book about real people who had real experiences with the real God in real locations. This is a book that is so distinct from all other religious books. This is not just subjective evidence. There is external objective evidences about the Word of God. And we're just going to examine a few of them. When I take my argumentation class, there was one thing my professor used to always teach me. He says this, you need to make sure that you are driving home good logic. I always thought to myself, what in the world did he mean by that? Until he began to break down the principles of logic. He says logic needs to be clear. Logic is basically principles for right thinking. Logic needs to be clear. Logic needs to be accurate. It needs to be relevant. It needs to be sufficient. But what we're going to find as we examine the scripture is that the Bible passes every one of these tests from clarity to accuracy, from relevancy to sufficiency, and we can trust the Word of God as a very special guide, a love letter that God has given to you, he has given to me, he has given to this whole world. There are several lines of evidences. Many of us have heard many of these lines of evidences for trusting God's word. Number one, there's accuracy. Number two, there's plenty of documentation. Number three, there's plenty of archaeology. Number four, there's cultural lines of evidences, scientific lines of evidence, and experiential lines of evidences. There's also prophetic lines of evidences. And we're going to examine a few of these with up-to-date information. This just came out today, this specific report, just today, and I believe this was very providential, came out today. This was actually in the Biblical Archaeological Review magazine. 
Purdue University scholar Lawrence Mykukatuk lists 50 figures, get this, 50 figures, this is today's report, 50 figures from the Hebrew Bible that have been confirmed archaeologically. The 50-person chart includes Israelite kings as Mesopotamian monarchs, as well as lesser-known figures. Their names appear in inscriptions written during or quite close to the lifetime of the person identified. What is so remarkable about the Bible, not only has it been, not only has archaeology confirmed the scriptures and has been a wonderful guide in understanding more about the scriptures, the Bible itself has been used by archaeologists and anthropologists to understand humanity's past. And the Bible has shown itself to be a very remarkable guide. When you take a good look at the Qumran scrolls, this is probably one of the most strongest forms of evidences for believing in the scriptures. The Dead Sea Scrolls have the greatest biblical impact. They provided the Old Testament manuscripts approximately 1,000 years older than our previously oldest manuscript. The Dead Sea Scrolls have demonstrated that the Old Testament was accurately transmitted during this interval. Praise the Lord for the Dead Sea Scrolls. I'm going to examine that a little bit more. When you think about the amount of documentation that is actually available for the Bible it is astounding. Just for the New Testament alone, there are over 24,000 documents. Just for the New Testament alone. In fact, what is so amazing about that is this. When you compare the Bible to other forms of literature, and here are some of the other forms of literature, uh, something about Caesar's life, uh, Ta Tacitus, and Plato. What is so remarkable, some about these primary forms of literature, is that from the day that they wrote those things, and when those copies are available, there is an approximate 1,000-year gap. 1,000-year gap and just a few different copies. What is so remarkable about the Bible is that there are over 24,000, just for the New Testament alone, 24,000 pieces of literature. And not only that, but the time when those pieces of literature were in to when those copies are available is just very minuscule. You know what's interesting? I was actually in England, um, as I said yesterday. I was in England just a, a few years ago. And I was there, and I was just, I was going to go speak at a particular church. And I got to the airport, and I like speaking to people uh, wherever I'm at the airport or airplane. And I was talking to this wise Englishman. The thing about English people is they sound very, very intelligent. That's why people use them for their documentaries. So this, I was sitting next to this wonderful English man. He asked me what I was doing in Manchester. So I began to explain to him what I was there for, and he said, oh, you really believe in the Bible? I said, absolutely. And I began to share various lines of evidences. I began to share, to me, one of the most powerful lines of evidences. I explained this to him, and then I said this. Did you know that the archaeologists consider what, what they consider is the oldest New Testament fragment is the Ryland Scroll, the John Ryland Scroll? And then he looked at me and he said, okay, did you just say John Ryland's? I said, yes. He said, did you know the John Ryland's library is right here in Manchester? I said, are you serious? <laughs> like I just had a boy or something. And what was interesting, I said, I found out. I found out it was just a mile from the place I was staying. I went to John Ryland's library, and there encased in this glass with security as well, you have what is considered the oldest New Testament fragment available, which is dated possibly even during the time of John. What portion is it? 
It's the portion of Jesus in the Gospel of John where he is standing before Pilate and Pilate's last words in that fragment that was there is what is truth. Just think about this, ladies and gentlemen. The oldest New Testament fragment that's available ends with this man who was standing before truth. He walks away saying, what is truth? What a witness for this world that is full of pluralism. I come from a very pluralistic background. In Hinduism, there's over 330 million gods. India is also the birthplace of Buddhism. And if it wasn't for the split that took place with Pakistan, India would be the largest Muslim country. Yet what is so amazing, the very person that Jesus sent there was Thomas. And the thing he told Thomas right before his crucifixion is, I am the way, I am the truth, I am the life. What a wonderful testimony Thomas would have shared with this dialectic form of thinking that was very present in India and that is still present. The Bible has power to change lives. Can you say amen to that? How about the canon? A lot of people think to themselves, wait a minute, isn't the Bible just a product of the Catholic Church? Didn't the canon start around A.D. 300? Well, take a good look at this. This is found in Beyond Opinion by Ravi Zacharias. As F.F. Bruce, who's considered one of the greatest scholars on uh, the biblical manuscript, says this. He writes, when at last a church council, the Synod of Hippo, in A.D. 393, listed the 27 books of the New Testament, that's that canon. That was the time when the canon was placed together. In other words, affirming or confirming the scriptural authority and the amount of books that would be there. Look what they say right here. It did not confer upon them any authority which they did not already possess, but simply recorded their previously established canonicity. What does he mean by that? The Greek father Origen, actually born in A.D. 185, less than 90 years after the death of the Apostle John, refers to the books of the New Testament in a way that exactly corresponds with our present canon. In other words, even before the establishment of the Catholic Church, even before that, um, that meeting that took place in 393, there was a recognized canon of Scripture that was available to the early church. The church father Eusebius was born in A.D. 270, also mentions the various books of the New Testament. And it is remarkable. The recognition of the books of the New Testament as a scriptural process was not overwhelming a natural process, but not, it was a natural process, not a matter of ecclesiastical regulation. In other words, this was not the product of a church. The canon was something that God had given authority upon and the early church already was recognizing. In fact, when you take a good look at the early church fathers, they were already calling the epistles of Paul scripture. Even Paul himself refers to Paul's writing. Even Paul refers to Peter's writings. And you here you see the early church was recognizing a canon that God himself was giving to them. This did not take place. This authorization of the canon did not take place because of a church. It took place because the Spirit of God was moving upon the early church and they were recognizing it. What is also so remarkable is this. That even if every single Bible, every single Bible that's available today was completely gone, annihilated, obliterated, scholars would be able to put back the entire scripture based upon the writings of the first century and second century church fathers. Even if every single Bible was taken away today, 
because what they said about Scripture and their use of Scripture was already being recognized as a kind of canon. In fact, a lot of people talk about the various manuscripts that exist. Here's what else is said. The degree of publicity of the New Testament and the sheer numbers of churches involved in reading and propagating, it acted as a protection against forgery and fraud. The communion of the different parts of the church with one another across these boundaries meant that mistakes and frauds could be recognized and guarded against. There are versions in Latin, Greek, Syriac, Coptic, Saridi, Arabic, Ethiopic, Armenian, Armenian, and many other languages. This wealth of manuscript material existing in different parts of the world in different languages forms an independent witness for a common original text. What the world actually views as some kind of witness, because when we have versions that are out here are manuscripts with this language and manuscripts with that language, this actually forms for the protection of the scripture, showing a very clear, accurate uniformity of God's thought that was preserved. And that is what is so amazing about God's word here. This book is a very cultural book. Now I'm gonna ask a very good question. How many people here have ever read a book written by an Indian person? Raise your hand. You guys need to do a little bit more reading. <laughs> Five people. How many here have ever written a, or read a book written by a person from China? Raise your hand. Okay, six or seven people. How many people here have ever read a book written by somebody who was from Russia? Okay, it's like the exact same hands, okay. <laughs> How many people here have ever read a book written by somebody who was an Eskimo? Raise your hand. Oh, see, you raise your hand now, okay. <laughs> One person. But guess what? Right now, there's somebody in India who's reading a Bible. There's somebody in China who's reading a Bible. Somebody in Russia who's reading a Bible, and there's probably some Eskimo coming out of the igloo with a Bible. The Bible is a universal book across all cultures, all lands. The Bible is so unique, it penetrates past prejudices and biases, and it reaches to the individuality of every single person. And that is what is so amazing about the Word of God, and that is why in this world that is full of so much shakiness, of so much pluralism and relativity, you can trust the absolute truth that God has given to you. And in a world today that's surrounded by extreme legislation and extreme immorality, our safety will be found more and more in following God's word. Can you say amen to that? Here's some stats about Indians. Indian Americans are Americans of Indian ancestry and comprise 3.18 uh, million people or about 1% of the U.S. population. The country's third largest self-reported Asian ancestry group after Chinese Americans and Filipino Americans. So we're number three. Communities of Hindus, Muslims, Christians, Sikhs, Jains, Buddhists, Farsis, uh, Parsis, Jews, and from India have established their religions in the United States. According to a 2012 Pew 
Pew Research Center, 51% consider themselves Hindus, 18% as Christian, and within that category there are Protestant, Catholics, and other Christian, 10% as Muslim, 5% as Sikh, 2% as Jain, and 10% are unaffiliated. According to a 2010 U.S. Census, Indian Americans have the highest household income of all ethnic groups in the United States. Now, it may seem a little bit prejudiced because I'm about to talk about Indian people right now. But here's the thing I want you to understand about Indian people. I'm using this as an example, and this is an example because um, this is taking place all over the world in history. What most people do not know about India is that the Bible has affected its culture and history in very unique ways. A lot of times when people think about superstition and paganism and spiritual darkness, they always think about India. In fact, every time I've gone to India, you go there, it is so unusual. You'll see statues, 60, 70 foot Hindu statues. You go there and you see temples that are on the, built into the, the mountaintops. You go there, there are sages and gurus. You see the Ganges rivers there. The Ganges river there, when you die as a Hindu, your ashes are spread in the Ganges river. My father's ashes were spread in the Ganges river. There are people who are having some kind of a, a ceremonial bath in the Ganges River. It is a very religious community that exists in India. Now, what is so unique is that the Word of God actually has influence in India. Take a good look at this. Mizoram, India's most Christian state, India is divided up in various states, 98% has also become India's most literate state. 95%, and by the way, I've looked at various research and reports that show biblical literacy is tied into higher GPAs for college students, high school students, and elementary school students as well. Very strong evidence that those who read their Bible and know their Bible actually do better in schooling than those who do not. While literacy in Kerala is 93%, Kerala has the oldest Christian community in India, tracing its origin to the Apostle Thomas in the first century after Christ. I want you to think about this because Kerala is where you have a lot of computer programmers coming out of. Where you have a lot of brilliant mathematicians and scientists coming out of. Kerala is very recognized in India as being the most educated, most intelligent state. And I say that, and I come from another state in India. <laughs> it's a very literate state. People are educated. In fact, what is so unique, the gospel has so penetrated that part of India that the very language in Kerala, the word for school, means the building next to church. The Bible has influenced art. The Bible has influenced literature. It has influenced language. It has influenced poetry. It has influenced philosophy, architecture, engineering, science, you name it. The Word of God has impacted this world. Many of the Ivy League universities that are in the United States took place because of Bible-believing founders who began those things. Because they believe in an education that would honor the Creator. The Word of God is so unique. And if you've never picked up the Bible, I believe now is the time that God is calling you to re-examine the Scriptures as I once did. 
prayerfully, and you will find that the Word of God will be so unique and a blessing to your soul than anything else could ever be. This is very interesting. This is written by Dr. Vishal. He wrote this book called The Book That Changed or That Made Your World. Talking about India. Bible translators did not merely give me my mother tongue. The mother tongue in India is Hindi. Every living literary language in India is a testimony to their labor. Do you know how many languages there are in India? Scores of languages in India. In 2005, a Mayali scholar from Mumbai, Dr. Verghese, submitted a 700-page doctoral thesis to the University of Nagpur. It demonstrated that Bible translators using the dialects of illiterate Indians created 73 modern literary languages. India one time was governed in a certain way where the ruling class or those who were in the courts, the high courts, actually spoke a different language than what the rest of the people did. And Bible translators begin to forge this and make sure uh, they begin to uh, add connection between when the British Raj began to come into India. And they wanted a better way of communicating. It was Bible translators that began to form the language of the illiterate Indians into an actual literary language that was found in dictionaries now and encyclopedias and translation books. And it was due to the handiwork of Bible translators. You can check this out in history. It is so marvelous the amount of influence that Bible translators have had upon India's actual language. These include the national languages of India, Hindi. And by the way, it's not just India that speaks Hindi. Pakistan, Urdu, and Bangladesh, Bengali. Five Brahmin scholars examined Dr. Vergis's thesis. Brahmin means that they were from that religious class of priests. Examined Dr. Vergis's thesis and awarded him a PhD in 2008. They recommended his work to be required reading for studies of Indian linguistics. Can you say amen to that? That is powerful when you just begin to realize the impact the Bible has had upon India. And there's more research that describes the Bible's impact upon other Asian countries as well. It is marvelous when you see that the Word of God has influenced so much in the world that we now live in today. Yet there are so many skeptics and doubters of it. But God is calling us to re-examine the Word of God like never before. Let's go back to that story that we were looking at in Luke chapter 24, and you're about to be blown away with a very unusual ending to this story. Luke 24. Jesus has just been explaining the scriptures to them, giving them a Bible study, recounting the prophecies of the Old Testament. Here Jesus is using this as a way of rebuilding their faith and strengthening them through their discouragement. Go to verse 28. Then they drew near to the village where they were going, and he indicated that he would have gone further. Jesus won't push himself into anybody's life. But they constrained him, saying, Abide with us. They were hospitable, for it is towards evening, and the day is far spent. They enjoyed this, their time with this mysterious stranger. They still had no clue who he was. Their faith seemed to be stronger now. And he went in to stay with them. Now it came to pass as he sat at the table with them that he took bread, blessed and broke it, and he gave it to them. Then their eyes were open and they knew him, and he vanished from their sight. 
Now watch their response. Then they said to one another, did not our hearts, what's that next word? Burn within us while he talked with us on the road and while he opened the scriptures to us. What is so unique about this story is this. In symbolism, there are boundaries that need to be very apparent. Otherwise, text can be over-spiritualized. But what is so unique about this story, you begin to see a very unique, relevant lesson for us, and that is this. The word for Emmaus in Greek is the word warm or lukewarm spring. These disciples, in their time of discouragement and doubt and despair, began to head towards this place of lukewarmness. Jesus cuts them off, gives them a Bible study, and they say, did not our hearts burn within us? Ladies and gentlemen, these disciples caught on fire again. They caught on fire again. In the hour of darkness, in that time when they were heading towards this place of being comfortable and no longer trusting Jesus anymore, Jesus shows up at the right time, at the right place, and in a certain manner begins to rebuild their faith and give them a Bible study. And as they heard the words of that living God, Christ, their hearts caught on fire again. New hopes, new ambitions, new dreams. Their hour of darkness turned into their greatest moment. Ladies and gentlemen, some of you may be going through that time of darkness. Some of you have been walking down that road of despair and discouragement and your faith seems to have shrunk you can no longer see the purposes and plans of God in your life anymore and you're wondering God where are you I'm here to tell you that Jesus wants to encourage you again through the word you might have walked away from the scriptures you might have walked away from that special time in God's word or you may never have picked up God's word Yet you are feeling that heaviness and that restlessness these disciples felt. God is calling you back to the Word. He's calling you back to that place again where you can clearly hear His voice in the Word. Jesus has much to tell you in the Scriptures. He has much to communicate to you about your life, about your dreams, about your purposes and plans. He wants to renew and rekindle that faith that might have been put out. He wants to put you on fire again. And if you will open up the scriptures, God will bless you. God has committed to everybody the facts of freedom, but it is humanity that utilizes the acts of freedom. And if you will open up the scripture, you will hear God's voice speaking to you personally those mysteries. I believe God is calling us to make a decision today, an eternal decision. That is to open your hearts again to the word of God.
I want to continue to invite you to these meetings. We have some very special things that we're going to be sharing with you this week and next week. But it always begins with the choice and that choice that God has given to you. If you will open your heart to the word, he will speak to you his mysteries personally. Let's bow our heads for a word of prayer. Father in heaven, we want to hold fast to what is true. In a world that is full of so much lies, God, so much darkness and pain, Father, help us not to forsake that source of hope and encouragement that you have given to us, more than just a book, Lord, but a portal between us and heaven's throne. Lord, I pray that every person may walk out, not as those discouraged disciples, but as those disciples that were on fire because they had seen Jesus in the Word. Thank you, Father. In your name we pray. Amen. This media was brought to you by Audioverse, a website dedicated to spreading God's Word through free sermon audio and much more. If you would like to know more about Audioverse, or if you would like to listen to more sermons, please visit www.audioverse.org.